Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have sent your Son for us because we know that we are so unworthy of all your grace and your mercy and that great action that you did in sending him to come under the law for us and be raised from the dead and for then sending us your spirit in him that we might have the adoption of sons and live in your presence. We ask that you would help us now to understand that great and wondrous mystery of the Son of God and the liberty that he has brought us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, we're, we're going to be looking at uh, Galatians 4 today, uh, and uh, especially Galatians 4, verses 1 to 20. But I want to, uh, I want to give you a brief summary of what we were talking about last time that we had class together, uh, and that is we were looking at the coming of the seed, why the law then... It was introduced because of transgressions until the seed should come. And so then we have the coming of the seed, who is the coming of Christ. And that becomes the purpose of the law. Whereas the Judaizers think of the law as an end in itself, they do not see it as leading to the seed, Jesus Christ. And so, uh, also... Paul speaks in the same way of the coming of faith, parallel to the coming of the seed. And thus, in its primary, objective, redemptive, historical sense, when Paul speaks about the coming of faith, he is talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, the seed. And therefore, the coming of the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, he is speaking in historical terms, in contrast to the Judaizers who want to absolutize that era of the law. They are opposed to the coming of the seed. They are opposed to the coming of faith. And they want to put the Galatians back under the law. And at the same time, uh, I suggested to you that as a result of this, we in the New Covenant era... We identify with what God has done in our relationship with Christ. So we are called to lay hold of this reality by faith, to enter into what Christ has done, and to lay hold of him by faith. And therefore, even in a new way, in the fullness of the times, to be justified by faith and to be identified with Christ, who is justified in his resurrection. And now, as we look at the beginning of chapter 4, we're going to see that Paul is actually continuing on with that discussion, and he is bringing an analogy, at least, to explain the contrast that he's talked about before. And you can see he's talking about some historical contrast, a historical development. And he begins with, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. 
Um, and by the way, uh, the previous stuff, I don't have time to go through all these quotes here in Galatians 3 we just discussed. You can look at those on your own. But he is, notice how the beginning of the section starts with as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he's owner of everything. And here I'm going to suggest to you in its most poignant sense, he's talking about the Old Testament covenant people of God, that they are heirs as children, and yet in some sense at the same time slaves. Heirs in some sense, and in another sense, slaves. In fact, he has this language of heir, which continues to kind of give you a brief overview of what's going on here in chapter 4. This idea of being an heir is found in verse 1 that we've just seen, plus also verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. Okay, sorry about being an heir. Then look at verse 30. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Shall not be an heir of the son of the free woman. And I think Paul is continuing the discussion that we've seen throughout this book, where he's talked about the inheritance that has come in greater fullness now with Christ's death and resurrection. That inheritance that is above, and us being heirs of that inheritance. And Gentiles being equal possessors in that inheritance, in the Son of God, who is the great heir. There's also another theme that begins to be picked up and becomes more dominant in the next section that we won't be looking at this week, and that's verses 21 to 5-1, and that is liberty. But you might want to think about that, liberty in Christ, as Paul begins to set that up in this section as well. Well, what do we have in terms of this analogy? In brief, I've given you uh, here under number three here, just laying out uh, in brief the analogy. You've got the children in verse one, and in verse three talks about the children again. In verse 2, under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And that pattern has continued. So we were children under the elementary things of this world, but when the fullness of the time came. That is, the time set by the father being the fullness of the time. So, of course, he's talking here about Christ and his coming in the fullness of the times. Now... What what I'm going to suggest to you here is that uh, Paul is thinking in terms of the age of Israel as some sense being a slave. I should always grab two pens because I've just misplaced one that I was using. Um, So... I feel naked without one. What? Yeah. No, no, dry erase pen. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know. Anyways, here it is. I found it. Okay. Um, sorry, I did find it. <laughs> here. 
Now, of course, you know the way I've suggested we can look at the Old Covenant in terms of them being justified, and I'm going to suggest that they are sons in the true sense. In their ultimate relationship to God, the children of Israel are sons of God. Okay. And, and even they're called the Son of God in terms of the broader covenant community. Israel is the Son of God. Um, but here we might put a son slash a slave in terms of this visible manifestation. In other words, the blessing of sonship is manifest in God's deliverance of Israel, and yet that deliverance will end up being reversed in exile. So here I write this as to represent the curse that lies over that situation so that there is some sense in which they're, they're yet a slave. And then he speaks about under guardians and managers till the date set by the father. Well, under guardians and managements. Look at the next section, four, law as a tutor. They are slaves under guardians and managers until the date set by the father, under the elementary things of the world and bondage. Paul seems to be focusing... I think, until the date set by the Father. There's bondage here. Okay. Now, again, to make this comparison, there's, there's bondage to Israel, in relatively speaking, because they're slaves before, they're sons before this time. All right? And that ultimately isn't said of the pagans. But this is said of Israel. But there's also a sense in which paganism is also in bondage. So he's going to speak of the elementary principles of this world for Israel in verse 3, and then he's going to speak again of the elementary principles of this world for the pagans in verse 9. Okay. So clearly there's a connection between the elementary principles here uh, and the elementary principles under complete darkness and unbelief. Okay. Now, so throughout this, we're going to be talking about a deliverance, I believe, that's a deliverance of Gentiles, but also, even relatively speaking, of Jews as well, under bondage. But what's, what's the critical, what is the critical Change. What is the critical transformation? It is the fullness of the time. See how that is until the date set by the Father? And so it happens in the fullness of the time. Well, what is this fullness of the time that Paul is talking about? Isn't it... I mean, he talks about this fullness of the time... For instance, later on, in contrast to you, by contrast, in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Days and months and seasons and years. Wherein were days, months, and seasons and years celebrated? Give me one example. What? In the Old Testament, right? So we had special times of days. We had months, right? And uh, monthly new moon celebrations, festivals and years. We had the Jubilee year and so forth. 
And so in a some sense, in a redemptive historical sense, this is the fullness of all that time. That time is wrapped up, okay, and Christ brings the fullness of the time. But there's also, I think, another sense in which he means the fullness of the time here. And that's a sense that Herman Ritterboss talks about, that is that it's time per se that is filled up. Okay. And I think that that is also indicated by the days, months, seasons, and years. There is some sense, I think, in which the pagan world, in its an extreme sense, is living by days, months, seasons, and years. They are li- living on the horizontal plane. Their focus is on this world and the cycles of this world, as in fact all paganism is. Okay, What is it? The next thing on the horizon, the next vacation on the horizon, the next big thing in this world on the horizon, living by days, months, seasons, and years. And if you go back to the law, now that you've come to Christ, you have made days, months, seasons, and years an end in themselves. As celebrated once here, they anticipated Christ. But now, if you celebrate them now, it's like absolutizing that. It's like absolutizing the previous time and neglecting the fullness of the times. And therefore, you are living like the pagan who lives after days, months, seasons, and years. Everything focused on the present time. And so I think Ritterboss is right when he talks about this is the fullness of time wrapped up. In other words, everything that history was looking forward to has been wrapped up in Christ. Time, in a sense, has been wrapped up. Think of the older Jewish eschatology, which looked this way. It looked ahead to the eschaton, sure, but it looked at as if days, months, seasons, and years, you know, we're leading to that. Okay? We're leading to this. And then when that eschatology would come, well, uh, I can't say what the Jewish eschatology really thought. They may continue to think about days, months, seasons, and years. But you see... If you had a purely future eschatology, which is biblical, that would be the end of days, months, seasons, and years. You would be caught up into the heavenly abode, into the very life of God in heaven, as we will. We will be caught up and we will experience eternal life insofar as a creature is capable of experiencing eternity without being God. I mean, we won't be outside of time looking at everything as eternally present to us like God does in his eternity, okay? But we will not experience days, months, seasons, and years, right? What does the book of Revelation say? You see, it speaks about the end of those cycles. No more day and night, right? So that we will come wrapped up into the light of eternity. And so... I'm suggesting that what Paul is saying is that's been semi-realized now. But in reality, the substance of it is now come in Christ, in the sending of the Son. 
Therefore, we do not live like the pagans. We live in the already. We live in the already of what has come in Christ. The already of accomplishment. So that in some sense, history is filled up for us. We do not live like the pagans, enslaved to the world, looking to the next day, month, season, and year. But if we celebrate days, months, seasons, and year, we do it out of the reality of being raised with Christ. That's a different kind of celebration. I mean, if you celebrate your birthday, you do it in light of being united with Christ Jesus. If you celebrate Christmas, you do it in light of that's come before, okay? All that kind of stuff. But we're not talking about the pagan celebration of days, months, seasons, and years. We're not talking about going back to Judaism because that is absolutizing those days, months, seasons, and years. And so when he talks about the fullness of the time coming, I think Ritter Boss is right. It's cosmic. There is something cosmic coming. And it's coming with the Son of God. Okay? It's coming with the Son of God. And that, I think, for Paul is especially significant. Look what he does, I have for you here, under section 6, suggesting to you a possible chiasm. This is kind of a revision of what other people have already done. See, we have in verse 3, in bondage. The other extreme, verse 6, we have a slave. Then in 4, we have sent his son. 6, God sent the spirit of his son. And then I put in brackets, born under a woman, uh, only because what some people, I, I see in the middle, under a law, under law, those are definitely coming together as I see it. But I put in brackets, born under a woman, because what some people see is they see a connection between born here and the next born that comes after it, okay? And then they say, in order that, and the next in order that fits with it. But at any rate, notice what we have here. We've got bondage, all right? And from bondage, we have God sent his son, And then we have under law. And then it reverses itself. Under law, God sent the spirit of his son as opposed to a slave. All right? So, wrapped up between, I mean, mean, certainly you can look at the center of this and think about how Christ identified under the law. And there's a focus. But you can also see how at each point, the Son is, or the sending of the Spirit of the Son, is in between the bondage and under the law. So that God sends the Son in this situation under the law. Now, under the law is partially talking about days, months, seasons, and years. That's part of the cycle of history, even under the law. Okay? And... So when God sends the Son, how does that change something? How does that bring a fullness of time which changes things so that the cycles of days, months, seasons, and years no longer are significant in redemptive history? What if he sends his eternal Son who is without days, months, seasons, and years, who has no beginning, into the midst of history. 
if he sends his eternal son, then of course the fullness of the time is wrapped up because eternity is broken into history. And see, that's what he has done. He has sent his eternal son into the midst of history. Now, we're going to expand more on that in a minute. But let's take a look at this idea of being sent to those under the law for a minute. He is sent to us under the law. What is it to be under the law here? Is it not to, in some sense, be enslaved? But enslaved? The Son of Man enslaved? No, not truly. But judicially become a slave for us. Declared to be a slave for us. Okay? And, in effect, receiving the curse of that judicial declaration upon himself as Paul talked about earlier in this book, right? Chapter 3.13. He bore the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, that then he might be raised from the dead and be declared to be the Son of God in his resurrection from the dead, as Paul says in Romans 1. And that is a judicial declaration, declared judicially to be a slave on our behalf, but once he bears the curse of the law and satisfies that curse, then should he not be then declared to be what he has been from eternity? The Son? And now in terms uh, declared in such a way that he might give us the adoption of sons. So we have the eternal Son of God coming into history, in effect, I think, under the law, being declared to be a slave on our behalf, that he might bear the punishment of that for us and be raised from the dead, now once again declared to be what he is in reality, the son who has triumphed over the law, sin, and death. Now, what I am trying to suggest to you in broad outlines here, is that Paul has been talking about the coming of the seed, right? He's been talking about the coming of the seed as opposed to the Judaizers who want to bring us back to the law and absolutize the law and make that an end in itself. And now he's showing us the great reality of what the coming of the seed is. The coming of the seed is the great eternal Son of God penetrating in the midst of history. And him being born under the law and being raised from the dead. Now, once he's raised from the dead, declared to have vanquished this curse, can you go back there? Can he go back? No, he can't go back. 
You see what he's done? He's lived the whole history of redemption on your behalf. Just like Israel was under the law. So he has come under the law and lived the whole history of redemption. He has received the law as upon Mount Sinai. He has gone through that experience with Israel and with his people. And he has been vindicated, coming out in exile, receiving the final curse of exile, and then being raised from the dead to be the fulfillment of what the prophets foretold. The Son of God. And notice what he says. Now, remember the whole issue of the seed in chapter 3? Part of that was to talk about how the Gentiles could receive the blessing through faith, right? Did the Gentiles have to come back under the law? No. Neither did the Jews. Neither should the Jews. And so this involves the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, I think that when he says, you see, therefore, that Christ redeemed us from those who were under the law, verse 5, in order that we might be redeemed, in order that he might redeem those that were under law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that, the, that those who are under the law includes we, okay? Because the logic of the sentence is he redeemed those under law in order that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, does the we include Gentiles? Yes. So those under the law also includes Gentiles. Okay. Now, it's true that in 1 Corinthians 9.20, Paul uses, speaks of those under the law being Jew. I came to those under the law as, you know, one under the law, and, and those not under the law as being uh, not under law. Uh, and he makes a distinction there between Jew and Gentile. But here, I think the logic of the text is driving us to see that in some sense in this context, those under the law include the Gentiles. There are a lot of scholars who say no, that this here is talking about the Jews, I disagree with that. I think that's wrong. And so they have Paul going back and forth, talking about Jews and then Gentiles uh, intermittently. But I don't think that works, because those he's redeeming those under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the we includes Gentiles here. And thus, those under the law includes Gentiles. And I think this fits with what he's done before. He's done the same thing in Galatians 3.13, where he basically said something similar. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. All right, In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So, again, you can see why I think that he thinks of being under the law also. He takes this, which is true of Israel and says, in its absolute sense, it is true of the Gentiles. They are under law. That is, they are under the curse of the law. Just as the elementary principles here in the land look backward to the elementary principles of this world. And so, if you will, 
When he thinks of going back, if you, the Judaizer, on the other hand, wants to go back to the elementary principles, back to being under the law, it's, it's really like going backward in redemptive history. Because this paganism under the law and the elementary principles, truly Israel is redeemed from that. So historically, you can put this back here, under law and under the elementary principles, and Israel is redeemed from that, in that she's truly sons, but the visible manifestation of that redemption has not been as fully manifest as it is now in the resurrection of Christ. And so I, you know, even though I talk about this relative contrast to the older situation, an absolute contrast to the pagan world, there's an organic unfolding here from that being in paganism to the life that God has given his people and the redemption from, Israel, uh, from Egypt and then to the fullness of the times in Christ Jesus. There is a drama, and Christ lives that drama, is what I'm suggesting. Christ lives that whole drama by becoming, coming under the law, ultimately coming under the law and, and the curse of the elementary principles of this world in its absolute sense, and then wraps up even the sense in which Israel is under the law so that he might experience all of that, identify with all of his people, Gentile and Jew alike, in the fullness of the times, bringing a fullness of redemption to both. Yeah. So you're thinking of the curse of the law for Jew and Gentile alike. You're not thinking in terms of Romans 2, that uh, Gentiles are under the law in the sense as a law of conscience or a law written on the heart. Yeah, I mean, I, I am thinking ultimately of natural law being behind it as Romans 1, okay? I think there may be, there may be an analogy there because that, it, that is the standard by which the Gentiles are under curse, that they are held accountable to that law. But, of course, they're also under the curse of Adam, right? So, um, But this law is revealable. Yes. Here in, here in Galatians 4. Yes, I think it is. Um, but I guess um, there might be a relationship between that and natural law because natural because revealed law then repeats natural law and, and brings it to its fullness. Uh, so I... But, I'm content with the under the law curse idea, but yeah. I'm just I'm kind of teasing you on the other one. Sure. Just just wondering. Go mm-hmm. ahead. Okay. Um, Certainly, the pagan view of living after this world is a rebellion against God. So maybe there's something there with what you're saying, Seaver. Of course, you know my view of Romans 1, that there is eschatology revealed in there. So the pagan is rebelling against entering into the eschatological state. So that the pagan, ultimately wanting to live by days, months, seasons, and years, is rebelling against the eternal life of God and doesn't want it. And wants this world and its days, months, seasons, and years is ended in itself. Now, see, I think if you get a hold of this... If I'm right about this, and if you get a hold of this, this has a great existential connection to who you are, right? 
I was going to mention that later, but but maybe you can get it now. Is is it you know think about the way we live as sinners? We absolutize something in this world which is passing away, and when we don't have it, we look forward to the next time we can get it, as if we're looking to another time down the road. You see. And therefore, we worship the world. And we're on this roller coaster of time of not possessing it and wanting to possess it in the future. We're in bondage. You see, we're in bondage. And this gospel provides the liberty to that. It says everything that history should truly look forward to has arrived in Christ. Eternity is broken into history. And you're liberated from that cycle. You see, you are freed. The Judaizers want to put you under bondage. That's why they don't like this. Well, I've claimed that we have eternity breaking into history. Where do we see eternity breaking into history? Well, we've seen the fullness of the time came. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. God sent forth his son. Now, this text has, in my opinion, very legitimately been used by the church in the past to prove the eternal generation of the Son of God that he is eternally begotten of the Father. Because look, God sends his son. Is he son before he sent? Isn't that presumed, right? God is son before he sent. All right. Then he comes into history. A liberal is going to have to say that he's Maybe some of them are going to say he's son once he's born of the Virgin Mary. Of course, others are going to try to make him son born another period of time in history before this, but that's not going to work either. Son, especially the way Athanasius makes his arguments for this. And I think you're going to see in this text that Paul actually, that Athanasius has caught something that's here in the Apostle Paul. God sends his son. And notice what happens later, it is that it's the father, you see, by implication, that sends his son. All right? Because we receive the adoption of sons. And who is it till the date set by his father, right? He does all these things till the date set by his father. Okay, so it's the father in relationship to the son. Now, Athanasius' argument is look, is the father eternal? Yeah, the Father is clearly eternal, right? He's got a son. He is in relationship to that son. If he's Father for eternity, if he's Father for eternity, then does not he have a son for eternity? Right? He has a son for eternity. If he's Father from eternity, he has a son for eternity. That means the son is eternally son. He's not just son at a particular time. He's eternally son. 
And so then we describe the relationship between a father and the son as one of begetting. All right? In time, you begot your son. If you're a father and you have a son, in time you begot your son. And so you might ask, well, does this mean that at some time in eternity, God begot the son? No. You're a creature, so you beget in time. Okay? <laughs> you can find a temporality when you give birth, so you beget in time. But God, who is eternal, he doesn't beget in time. He's not confined to temporality. He is eternal. So he begets the Son from eternity. This is the eternally begotten Son of God. That's why it's the fullness of the time can enter with him. You see? Because he is eternally begotten from the Father. No Arian who denies the deity of the Son can do justice to this text of the fullness of the time breaking in with the Son of God. Now, another point is you also have the eternal spiration of the Spirit manifest here. If you have the eternally begetting of the Son... Notice what our parallel is to this. We have in verse 6, Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts. The spirit of his Son. And if this chiasm is right, there's a parallel between God sent his Son in verse 4 and God sent the spirit of his Son in verse 6. God sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts. Now, first of all, Let's look at, for instance, let's respond to one terrible objection that somebody might make to the eternal uh, generation of the sun here, eternal begetting of the sun here. They may say, and I think terribly wrongly, that God sent his son, born of a woman, means that God has a son who was born of a woman, and then he sent that son. And so that the sending occurs after him being born of a woman. Well, for one thing, that doesn't follow the order of the text. Okay, It does not follow the way the text goes, but it also does not follow the parallel with the sending of the Spirit. See, the sending of the Spirit, because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son. So God sends forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Does God send forth see if it does God send forth the spirit so that he becomes spirit once he's in your heart? No, he's spirit before he sends him into your heart. Okay? He is the spirit sent forth into our hearts. And therefore, he is spirit prior to the sending. Okay, he is spirit prior to the sending. So the son is clearly the son prior to the sending into the world. Here the spirit is sent into our hearts. Here the son is born of a woman. Okay, so if this, he is spirit before he is sent into the heart, so he is son before being born of a woman. All right, so we are still locked up to the eternal generation of the Son of God. 
Have I lost any of you? Okay. Clearly, if you missed some of that, don't worry. Get to the heart of it. The heart of it is there's no way around this. He is son before being born of a woman. Just as the spirit is spirit before being sent in your heart. Now, the other wonderful thing about this, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. Notice it's the spirit of his son. Does this not presume that the son is also endowed with the Holy Spirit in his resurrection? So that now when you see receive the Spirit, you receive the Spirit of the Son of God, the Son who has possessed the Holy Spirit in fullness in resurrection. He is the Spirit of his Son. But you see, he is suggesting, I think, that that giving forth of the Spirit to his Son and the giving forth of the Spirit to us also reflects the eternal spiration of the Spirit, just as this sending of the Son reflects the eternal generation, or eternal begetting of the Son. Him being eternally begotten here is presumed by the relationship. Him being eternally spirated here, all right, that doesn't make as much sense maybe to you, but eternally spirated here must also be presumed ahead of time. In other words, what the church argued in the past was that the Son of God was eternally begotten of the Father, right? That's the relationship between the Father and the Son. Well, then the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay, so that the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. You put it like this. From Father and Son, at least according to the Western view. So when Christ says, you see, that he will send his Spirit who proceeds from the Father, you see, he proceeds from the Father, and he sent, the Son sends him, so he proceeds from the Son as well. This is an eternal relationship. So wondrous is this, if this is right. You see, if, if the one presumes an eternal relationship, so does this. This shows why the fullness of time has come into your hearts as well. You see, the Son is eternal. He comes into the midst of history bringing the fullness of the times. And then in his resurrection, as God-man, right, in terms of mediator, he possesses the Spirit, right, in his resurrection. And now he gives that forth to you in the fullness of the times. Now you are identified with eternity. You see, you are identified with the eternal Spirit by the Spirit being in your hearts. The fullness of eternity has come into your hearts, by which you then cry, Abba, Father. You are then brought back to the eternal Father. 
the Son. No Judaizer can abide by this. So I appreciate Professor Dennison pushing me to see that this is also the eternity of the Son that Judaizers are opposing. Okay, Certainly they're opposing the Son of God, but here you can see in his divinity they oppose him because he brings in the fullness of the time. And they want to bring men and women back under bondage to days, months, seasons, and years. They want to bring people back into bondage to this world and a Judaizing eschatology, a Judaizing agenda to bring in the kingdom of God. Because that's what Judaizing eschatology is. It's one that absolutizes this world. Just like you as a pagan, before your life in Christ, didn't you absolutize this world? It was always the next thing to get, right? And that next thing, you were enslaved to that. That was your God. Whatever especially was most ultimate in your life was your ultimate God. You had many gods, many lords. And yet, that's what the Judaizer wants to do. As he absolutizes the law, makes it as an end in itself, he wants to make this world in an end in itself. And that's when you can control people. You know, when you lay out that little gift here and there, you can control and manipulate people because you've got something worldly that they want. And if that's the thing that's most important to them, you've got control over them. Right? You know what I'm saying. So, that's what the Judaizers are seeking to do. They wanted to bring the people of God in subjection. And Paul says in chapter 2, they came to spy out his liberty which we had in Christ and to make us slaves. But we did not give in to them for a moment that the truth of the gospel might abide with you. And so they hate God. They want to make this world in and in itself. They will not trust in the Son of Man because, see, to trust in the Son of Man is to lay hold of another and that the eternal God. Right. But if I live by works, I can live by my accomplishing this and that deed to bring my earthly goal. So that's what a Judaizer wants. He wants you to live by works. You see how the, the connection of the redemptive historical with your identification with that redemptive historical. Right? Your identification is by faith in which you trust in the promises of God in Christ Jesus and your vindication in Him. And you're laying hold of Him from eternity. I mean, the eternal one, by faith. That's liberty. Judaizers want, no, you've got to work and work on it and we're going to be your overseers. Remember, Jesus says... They love to be called rabbi, right? Well, take a look. Well, first of all, what, what Athanasius presumed when he showed us the eternal begetting of the Son, all right? He presumed this relational categories, right? It's the Father, 
and Son. If He's Father from eternity, then we have the Son who is begotten from eternity. Relational categories. And what does Paul give us here in this chapter? He gives us relational categories. Look at these. A child, verses 1 and 3. A child, in this context, is a relational category because he is a child of the Father. And then verse 2, a father. Relational category, isn't he not? He is not a father unless he has a son. And then a son. Verses 4 and then 5 has sonship. And then 6, we have it twice. And 7, we have it twice. You see, here Paul is talking about relational categories. Because this eschatology is a relationship with the living God. This is not a static eschatological set of categories that he is dealing with, an impersonal set of categories. He's dealing with that which most grips your heart, relationships. As you know, when you have relationships that go sour, that were very important to you. This is the most important relationship ever with your God and Father. The great benevolent Father of eternity is yours in the fullness of the time. That's what this eschatological reality is about, you see. That's what this heavenly reality is about. You coming into relationship with the eternal Father, His eternal Son, His eternal Spirit, and entering into that life of eternity, and therefore being liberated from this world. He is the one who gives you true liberty in life. And what we have, by implication, I think, is the Judaizers are opposed to all three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They oppose the Father who sent the Son. They do not want the fullness of his fathership. They want to be fathers. They want to lord it over. They do not want the fullness of the Son, and they do not want the liberating life of the Spirit of God. They do not want the gift of the Spirit, you see, to be given to the Gentiles. They really don't want the transcendent gift of the Spirit, you see. That's why their Jewish eschatology is a this-worldly eschatology. If they think of the age of the Spirit coming, it's coordinate with this world because they're looking at bondage and they want to control you too. They will not live in faith in the promises of God. They will live and trust in themselves. And therefore, you see the Judaizers are opposed to the eschatological fruition 
of all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and are opposed to your eschatological fruition in them. Instead, you see, they want to exalt themselves. They don't want you to have this exaltation because then you're liberated from them. Instead, they want to exalt themselves where you are under their feet and they are exalted by their own deeds. And therefore, the Judaizers are opposed to your identity. Don't you know there's lots of Judaizers running around? They want control of your life. They want to control you by focusing you on this world and what you can gain from them in this world. And they will do what they can to lure you away from the Father, Son, and Spirit and from the great liberty you have in them. Don't give in to them. Live by faith. Because that's your identity. That's who you are. Praise God, that's who you are. And notice the wondrous contrast here at the end. You see, at the end of this section, Paul says, you are heirs, not slaves. Look, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When the Judaizer dominates you, he's going to end up making you simply a slave. That's what you'll be. When the Father comes to you and you have a relationship with him, yes, you can be called a servant of God and you are a slave of God. But it's a slavery in which you are liberated from the old slavery. It's a slavery instead described as being a son. Contrasted to the Judaizers where you're left just as a slave, here you're made a son. And what does that son mean? You have full privileges in the Son of God. Was not the Son of God and is not the Son of God loved of his Father from all eternity? Does not the Son of God give everything? I mean, excuse me, does not the Father give everything to the Son? Is not the life of the Father fully shared with the Son? And the Son with the Father. That's what He's done for you. You've been made sons of God. Praise God, you have the richest relationship that has ever existed. You're not slaves. Live out of that freedom. Live by faith. Well, let's take a break if you have any questions. Okay. All right. Well, now we're moving on to... uh, 
chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And uh, notice he says, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, which by nature were no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days, months, seasons, and years. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that Paul is talking about this, uh, do more than suggest, actually, that Paul is talking about this in terms of the fullness of the time. You see, he's thought about the fullness of the time, right? And so now he's saying, notice how the time indicators are found in ver- at the beginning of 8 and the beginning of 9. However, at that time when you did not know God, looking back, in a sense, redemptive historically, at that t- previous time. However, but now, verse 9, now that you have come to know God, the now time of the fullness of the times, you see. And so now you have come to know God. And so when he... Uh, you know, he's got the previous time when you didn't know God, you were slaves. Now that you know God, meaning implicitly, now that you know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you see, now that you've participated in the fullness of the times in them, you see, you know that God who has revealed himself to you in the fullness of the times. And so I think he's suggesting Uh, that the people of God now know God in a more intimate way, uh, even, than those in the previous history of redemption. Perhaps following off of Jeremiah 31, 34, they will all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will remember their sins no more. You see? So it's like knowing God in the fullness of time results from this irreversible forgiveness, this forgiveness as Hebrews 10.18 puts it, you see, is that in the New Covenant age, their sins and lawless deeds will be remembered no more. I will not remember their sin against them as I remembered Israel's sin against her when she experienced sword, famine, nakedness, and plague. I will remember their sins no more, and therefore they will know me in a fuller way. And then he says are rather known by God. Notice, you are known by God. Who are you? You're Gentiles, right? Wait a minute, scratch your head, because who was known by God in the Old Testament? You only have I known from all the families of the earth was Israel, right? Now you are known by God, and known in this much more intimate way, you see coming into the fullness of the time in him. He knows you. That's the intimacy of this relationship, you see. You are known by him. Think about that. That stands first and foremost, or rather are known by God. See the focus on grace there? When you think about your life in Christ, you think, I am first known by God. God knows me and loves me. And therefore, I know him. And to live in faith in that reality that I possess in him. So, here again, being known by God in the fullness of the time, being known by the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the fullness of the time. 
And this is contrasted implicitly to the Jewish theocracy and Gentile paganism. And so, I've, you know, as I talked to you about a relative contrast to Jewish theocracy and an absolute contrast to Gentile paganism, here I think the contrast is made because he speaks about the other thing being slavery. You see, however, at that time when you, did, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are no gods. Ultimately, that's paganism, right? You're slaves to the no gods, all right? And, but then he refers to a situation, I mean, and, and then, again, he refers to something else of another enslavement, which is related to paganism. At the second part of verse 9, but how is it you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you wish to be enslaved all over again? So again, focusing on the elementary things. You're going to be focused on the elementary things of the world. Enslaved. Okay? How do you turn back? Turn back in history, in a sense. You're turning back in redemptive history, and you're turning back to those things. You see, because now you have something new. How do you turn backward? And you're seeking to be enslaved to them all over again. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. Now he's talking about something can also be true of the Jewish festival. You endure days, months, seasons, and years. So again, some similarities... He's presuming between going back under the law and absolutizing the law and Gentile paganism. But you see what the wonder is in all of this? The contrast to the enslavement is that you are known by God. (laughs) Okay? You are known by God. If you're liberated and known by God... Why do you seek to enslave yourselves to those things again? You see, that's the rebuke. He's got an indicative, meaning a indicative. Remember what that means in English grammar? The way things are. You know, you you talk about an indicative as opposed to an imperative. That's the way things ought to be, right? Indicative, the way things are. Who you are in Christ, right? He starts with that. You're known by God in Jesus Christ in the fullness of the times. That's liberty. So why are you going to go be enslaved to these things all over again? You see. Do you see what he's doing? <laughs> you see what he's doing. He's implying that slavery results from a lack of a one living out of the fullness of the times. Right? It is when we lay hold of the promises of God in Christ Jesus and lay hold of the fullness of the times that we once again experience that liberty which is ours in Christ Jesus. That's your answer to enslavement. It's not moralism. It's not you picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. The answer is laying hold of the fullness of the times. What is the Judaizer trying to get you to do? He's saying, don't have enslavement. I'm going to give you the Jewish law, and I'm going to take, I'm going to devoid it from faith, and I'm going to give it to you as a bunch of moral propedeutics that you ought to do. He's going to have you live by works, you see. He's going to have you live in enslavement. 
Whereas Paul is freeing you by drawing you unto the heavenly arena. You see the crassness of moralism here, too. What does moralism do? Even in the church, what does moralism do? Focus you on propedeutics, just simply what you ought to do. In a way that devoids it from faith. Okay? Devoids it in from the promises of God in Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God. And simply has, this is what you ought to do, this is what you ought to do, and I'm going to give you the next practical application of this you got to do, and this you got to do, and this you got to do. And so you're left with enslavement. He has given you something greater. He has given you liberty. Liberty in Christ Jesus, which he'll expand upon in the rest of this chapter. So do not become slaves of men. If I were seeking to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ, Paul says in 1.10. Remember, his gospel is not according to man, because it is not according to works. So this brings us way back to that theme of not according to man in the narrative, okay? But according to Christ, here it's not implicitly, not by means of the law, not returning to those beggarly things. And then he begins this next section, or verse 11 may be a transition to the next section. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. We have had mention of vanity in this before. Here he has labored over them. He fears lest he's labored over them in vain. And remember, to return back to the law is like trying to destroy that which has come in Christ Jesus. It is like returning to vanity. And now in this next section, what I'm going to suggest to you is in verses 12 to 20, Paul is trying to bring the Galatians back into union with Christ. Remember, that's what he was trying to do with his narrative before when he talked about his, what he did for the Galatians when he went to Jerusalem and so forth. Here, what he's going to do is he's going to go back and show what their relationship used to be and how they used to be identified. And he's going to use that to try to draw them into this drama of the history of redemption, to draw them back into union with himself and therefore back into union with Christ. Okay, So we're going to, we're going to think a little bit in terms of narrative now. But in this, I want you to think in terms of where it's placed. Some people who look at these verses 12 through 20, they see this as kind of breaking in and breaking up the narrative. Okay? And uh, I'm actually going to have you read this, so because you may not be familiar with it, uh, I'm going to ask some people to read. But I want you to notice what comes before and after it when you read. What comes before is what we just talked about. What comes after is verses 21 to 31, which talks about the bondage under the law and the bondwoman and the free woman, and the children of the bondwoman versus the children of the free woman. 
going to talk about children here, too, in these verses. We're going to look at it. But more importantly, you've got to think, how is this narrative that he's going to describe related to him trying to draw the people of God away from the Judaizers and bondage to the law back into union with Christ as they come back into union with himself? Okay. So if someone would read for us verses 12 to 14... I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Thank you. Verses 15 and 16. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Okay, and someone, um, verses 17 and 18. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Is it 20, did you say? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Verse 18 through 18. But it is a good it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. Thanks. And verses 19 to 20. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone. I am perplexed about you. Okay. Well, we're going to kind of look at this in some stages, some of the stages that I had you read, actually. Um, and first of all, I want you to, again, think, what I'm, what I'm going to suggest to you is that Paul, kind of an overall perspective here, what Paul is doing is he's going to say, hey, you Galatians, you received me as a messenger of the fullness of the times in Jesus Christ before. And you, therefore, identified with me in my sufferings because I possessed and I was the representative of this transcendent kingdom of God, which came about through the sufferings of the Son of Man. And therefore, I suffered in him. And you, you identified with me in the past. You were going to give your own eyes for me. But now what's become of that? And you're turning away. You're turning to a different gospel. And you're turning to these Judaizers who want you to seek them as an end in themselves. So let's, let's look at some of the things that he says here. I beg of you, brethren. First of all, what would be surprising for Paul to say this if he was a Judaizer, would he be calling Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, brethren? Not quite, right? You've got to become a Judaizer. You've got to become circumcised, at least, for us to call you brethren. You know, he thought about his kinsmen according to the flesh. When Paul was a Judaizer, he wanted to please them. And here, 
of course, he's already said this back in 3.15, where he's spoken of them as brethren, so that was another indication there as well. But notice that he says, Become as I am, for I so also have become as you are. I have become, become as I am. Now, he's using a first person here. I. Does anybody remember back a few chapters where he'd used I before to describe himself? In other words, become as I am. Well, then who is he? Chapter 2. Yes. I have been crucified with Christ, right? And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And before that, he'd said, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. So he is, become as I am, one who has died to the law, who has been crucified with Christ, and who lives to God in the heavenly places. For I have become as you are. What might he be talking about there? I have become as you are. And then he's going to describe his sufferings, part of this. Who were these people? These Galatians were Gentiles. Yes, Gentiles. Is Paul saying that he has become as a Gentile? Remember what he had said to Peter, who are you? In 2.14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, you see, and that's implicitly what Paul has done. He has become like a Gentile. And therefore, notice, become as I am, for I has become as you are. Now, there's something more mysterious here that I'm even catching, okay, because there may be some sort of exchange going on here. Become as I am, for I have become as you are. Is there some way in which he is uniquely identifying with Christ in this, in this, in this way that he's describing this language? I have become as you are, therefore become as me, just like Christ became as us under the curse of the law, perhaps, and therefore we're united with him. Hmm, I don't know, but maybe. Now, now he does something that I think is fascinating. In verses 13 through 15, he goes into past history of their relationship with him. Past relationship with them. Now, certainly Paul has talked about the past before in this book, and he's talked about his past in Judaism and then what he did in his mission and what he did for all the churches, the Gentile churches, and going to Jerusalem. But here he's talking specifically about his past history with them. And some people talk about this as an appropriate place to talk about a friendship appeal uh, at this point in the letter, uh, and maybe there's something to that. But I also wonder, and I'm laying this out as kind of suggestive, I wonder if there's something like a flashback uh, going on here in terms of narrative. I'm not sure of this, but something for you to think about. You know, even in the ancient... You, you might be familiar with flashback. In fact, one of the most uh, 
probably some of the, some of the well, one well-known form of flashback in a recent film, say recent because film being recent as opposed to ancient literature, is Casablanca. Okay, in Casablanca, Rick, who's the main character, has a flashback about Elsa, okay, who's the main woman in the story. Uh, and uh, what this flashback does is we've been, there's this drama gone on where Elsa and her husband, Victor Laszlo, suddenly show up in Casablanca, and we don't understand all the reasons why Rick is responding the way he's doing. And then suddenly, in the film, we get this flashback where it goes back to how he was with Elsa back in France just before, just as World War II was breaking out, and how they had to flee together, and they got on different trains, and she said that he was going to meet up with him. And that never happened. Okay, Now we know what's going on with Rick. And Rick has to now identify with the story, okay, and has to be transformed by the story. Now we have, we have flashback in ancient literature, you know, Odyssey is a little bit of a flash, is somewhat of a flashback. Oedipus has a flashback later on at the end, but I don't know if we have flashback in the same place in ancient stories, but I'm wondering if this is kind of like a flashback. But a flashback that's, that's kind of different than the one in Casablanca, where Rick was flashing back so he'd enter into the story, is Paul getting the Galatians to flash back to his relationship with them so that now they will enter into the story. They will enter into the story of Christ Jesus in union with him. I don't know, but whether it's a flashback, precisely, it clearly is a remembrance of the past, right? And it clearly is he's causing them to remember the past so that they would remember the union they had with him and how far they have strayed from that, right? And so, he's going to then speak of that earlier relationship. And he speaks of it in terms of the Galatians having identified with him and his sufferings. Okay. And so, he goes on, You know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Well, first of all, if Paul is talking about himself having become like a Gentile, what was their response to him when he became like a Gentile? They received him. You did me no wrong, right? You did me no wrong. But if you were a Judaizer, how would you have responded to Paul? A Paul who had become like a Gentile? This man who used to be a Pharisee like the rest of us, now become like a Gentile? You would reject him, wouldn't you? And he clearly comes like a Gentile. Because he comes with a bodily ailment. It was because of a bodily ailment that he came to them. If I'm a Jew, and I want to really absolutize the period of the law and the blessings of the law, what am I going to say about a person with a bodily ailment? 
cursed of God, perhaps. Cursed of God. Therefore, not going to identify with them, especially one claiming to be a messenger of God. But notice how the Galatians respond. My condition was a trial to you, but you did not despise or scorn me. Instead, you see, what they did is they received him. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. You received me as a messenger of God. Now, how has he just described God in this previously section? He's described God as the one who brings in the fullness of the times, right? The great heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So is he not saying, you received me as a messenger of the fullness of the times? As this messenger of God who brings in the age to come? And of Christ Jesus himself? Has he not just spoken about Christ Jesus who gave up himself, who came from eternity, who was born under the law, received the curse of the law, and was raised into righteousness and life? Him united to this heavenly Christ? They received him as they would the heavenly Christ, the Christ who transcends. The life of the transcendent Christ was in him. And therefore he experienced that life in this present time as one with union with his sufferings. With unions with the sufferings of Christ. So they did not despise that. Who would despise that? Judaizers, right? The Judaizers would despise that. And by saying, you did not despise that, is he implicitly saying, you are despising it now, though? You see? That's what you're doing now. Implicitly, you would have despised me if you were in your present condition. You would have despised me. You didn't despise me then. I want to draw you back into union with myself, that I, you may be drawn back into union with Christ, that you may not loathe that, that you may rejoice in that, you see? <coughs> And that, therefore, you may rejoice in Christ. You may rejoice in his message and that of God the Father. Well, notice what he also says here in the next verse. Where, then, is that sense of blessing you had? Now, where is that sense of blessing you had? Meaning, in that time, they had a sense of blessing. Now, this word for blessing is makarios, and it's different than eulogia, which is the other word that Paul uses elsewhere when he describes the blessing of the Gentiles. But, in Romans 4, 6, and 9, he does use this word makarios for blessing, describe the blessedness of the one to whom God will credit righteousness apart from works. There is a synonym here, so is there at least some vague connection here? Is the blessing that they received, that they're where they received the sense of blessing, is this some sense of the blessing of the age to come? 
Well, it certainly is some sense of blessing. They received him as a blessing. They did not receive him as a curse. And I think even though it's not the same word, you have to say implicitly, this is the blessing of the age to come. This is the blessing of the eternal life that's been given in the Son. Because, notice, where then was the sense of blessing that you had? The blessing follows after receiving me as an angel of God, a messenger of God as a Christ Jesus himself. So it's the blessing of Christ that they are receiving, that they received in receiving him. And now what was their response? Notice their response. For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. You would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Aren't they identifying with Christ in his sufferings? They're identifying, they would have identified with Paul in his sufferings, right? They would have torn out their eyes and given them to him because they recognized the blessing of the messenger of God, the eternal blessing in Christ Jesus. They would have been willing, knowing that, they would have even plucked out their own eyes something that was considered a great asset, the eyes. You had to tear those out for him. You see, this eschatological life is one of relationship, right? With the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so they see him as related to Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are going to relate reciprocally by giving of themselves, and so by uniting themselves with the Son of God who gave themselves, gave himself for us. And it is interesting. Would the Judaizers have done such a thing? Would the Judaizers have torn out their eyes for his sake? No, they would not have. Because, of course, I mean, of course, you know, Paul wasn't blind himself, if there is any allusion to any problem with his eyes, which I, I can't, I don't know is true or not. But he wasn't blind himself. He went to the temple, right, in Acts. But Acts 21, 28 to 30, he was in the temple. He was not a blind man. But if they had given of their eyes, it is interesting to think about what they would have become Maybe, maybe he is alluding to what they would have become that is blind. And if they were blind, would they have participated in the full rights of the old covenant life? No. Leviticus 21.18, The blind cannot offer the bread of God and the offering by fire in the temple. They have come to a life that transcends. They have seen their lives in union with the fullness of the times in Christ Jesus. And they are willing to live out of that, you see, by faith in him. They are identifying with him in relationship. As he has come to them, he 
they are identifying with him. Now, it is, in fact, interesting that uh, they do receive him, by the way, as an angel of God, a messenger of God. Um, there is, they had already received the Spirit earlier, and the, the words are not the same. Uh, but, again, there is this action going on. It's almost like a narrative where you have... The action of God the Father earlier, you see, sending the Son, and then us receiving the Spirit, right? And now we have the action of Paul coming, and them receiving him as a messenger of God, and their union with him. Now, I've been claiming all along, of course, that this is a living out, all right? This is a living out. He's reminding the people of Galatia how they used to live in light of the fullness of the times when he first came to them, trying to draw them back into that. Well, then he makes that clear again when he says, in effect, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth, verse 16. By telling you the truth. The truth that he told them was the truth of the gospel. And if you remember... This truth of the gospel is the truth of the transcendent kingdom of God that's come in the Son of Man. In other words, it's not just the general statement of the message of salvation throughout history. It is, it is that, but in its fullness. Because, as you might recall, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, so and so. Well, Peter was acting in a way that was somewhat consistent with the Old Testament economy, but he was not acting in accordance with the fullness of the times. And therefore, when he says he was not acting in accordance with the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel now in its fullness, in terms of the fullness of the times. And so here as well, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? You see, the truth of the gospel of the fullness of the times. You identified previously with that gospel. You were going to give of yourself for my sake. And now I'm telling you the truth of the gospel once again. And now I'm becoming your enemy. You see, I was friends. We were united. Now I'm becoming your enemy. Am I becoming your enemy now? In fact, there's an irony here, of course. If who sh- I mean, if if you're a messenger and you tell the truth, that, that messenger should be my friend <laughs> in some way. <laughs> At least the real enemy is the messenger who tells me a lie, right? And here, Paul is not just telling them the truth in general; he's telling them the truth of Christ. Well. The Judaizers will have none of it. You see, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Doesn't this imply that they are now taking on a different friendship? 
are they recognizing the union they have with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because if they were laying hold of the fullness of the times by faith in union with God, then would not be true that those who are friends of God would be friends of theirs. Right? So if now Paul is becoming their enemy by telling them the truth, is it not because they are neglecting? They're leaving God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are connecting their hearts with others, others who would enslave them. They are connecting their hearts with the Judaizers. Because their hearts united to the Judaizers, now the servants of God potentially become their enemies. And so he will talk next about the Judaizers. And notice what he has here. I've got it under 15 for you. The Judaizers, by contrast, seek self-exaltation before men. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. Now, notice how this goes. Now, I've, I've given a question mark here as to maybe there's two chiasms here. But this is a question mark. I just think it's interesting. In verse 17, you've got, they, okay, you have seek mentioned twice, and in the middle it's not good. And here he's talking about the way they eagerly seek you, but not for good. They wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. Okay? Not for good. So you've got the Judaizers seeking them, and it's interesting that actually this uh, this word here also implies the idea of seeking with zeal. They are zealous for you. And it's the verbal form of what Paul, of the word for zealot that Paul used of himself before his conversion in 114. And uh, so they seek you, but for no good. Well, that you may seek them. So what is their focus? Their focus here is for you to seek them. They are seeking, the Judaizers want to exalt themselves, right? And they want you to seek them, all right? You're to seek the Judaizers, not Christ. In other words, before God the Father came in relationship with you, and you identified with the Father in being related to Paul. Now, by opposition, the Judaizers want to be sought. They want to become gods. They want to be sought as an end in themselves. They want to be exalted for who they are, what they've done by their good works and good deeds. But he says they don't seek you for good. They don't seek you for the good of the kingdom, the good of Christ. They seek you for no good. They seek you for evil by implication. And so the Judaizers seek you, but they do that to shut you out. Now, it's very interesting. This, this term here, they do it to shut you out. And it, it, I think 
clearly we can at least say by this that they want to shut you out from Christ, right? Just like they wanted to shut out the Gentiles, all right? They want to shut the Gentiles out of the faith. But I'm, I think, I'm wondering if there's something else going on here. Is it that they, because of the way he uses the language, they want to shut you out so that you might seek them? Now, that could be just they want to shut you out from me and the gospel so that you will seek them by contrast. But it could also be they want to shut you out even from themselves. They want to separate themselves from you, exalt themselves over you, so that you'll then have to seek them. Okay? And if, if that's what's going on, it would certainly be in contrast to the way that Paul is relating to the Judaizers here in this chapter, where he's come to them, and they've come in union with him, and there's been that intimacy with relationship. Okay. Now, even if that's not what he has in mind with the verb to shut out, where they're being shut out from them, you know, they want to shut you out from even themselves, okay, at least there's still a sense there that they want you to be zealous for them. Okay, They want you to be zealous for them as an end in themselves because it's not for good. And that's going to be contrasted to the next thing of good seeking, you see, because in verse 18, Paul's going to contrast. It's always good to be, to be eagerly sought in good and not only when I'm present. There, okay, here is, here is the question. It's always good to be eagerly sought in a commendable way and not only when I am present. Now, this, this is, uh, can be somewhat difficult because who is Paul talking about? All right? Is he talking about it's, it's good for you to seek me? Okay? It's good for you to seek me uh, in a good way. And not only when I'm present with you, okay? Or is he saying that it's good for you to be sought? I think it's more likely the former, okay? Where it's good to, for me to be sought by you, and not only when I'm present with you, you see. But nonetheless, this is for good. It's a relationship of good. And therefore, whoever is being sought, whether it is Paul or them, they are being sought in a good way, not as an end in themselves. Only in Christ Jesus. It's good to be sought in bond, in bondage with Christ, in union with Christ. That we may seek one another in union with Christ. That is, enter into relationship with one another in union with Christ, in a good way. And not just when I am with you. And, I, and so I think because of the contrast he's making with the Judaizers here, you see the two sets of statements are at odds. Verse 17 at odds with 18. That whatever this seeking is, it's a seeking totally diametrically opposed to what the Judaizers. They're being sought for their own good, which isn't true good, in separation and wanting to exalt themselves. The seeking that Paul is talking about in the next verse where it's good to be sought is one in union with Christ as Paul, in fact, was in union with them 
when they shared in his sufferings. And not only when I'm present with you, because you see, what he's referring to there is a time when he was present with them, which he just talked about, when there was that good seeking going on. They were willing to give up their eyes for him. Okay. And now it's good to be sought. Probably, I think, for you to seek me. To be you to be identified with me in a good way. You see? So that you might be identified with Christ. And that's why he then goes on, my little children, with whom again you see I'm in labor in Christ until he's formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. There what he does, little children whom I'm in labor, he is talking as if he is their spiritual mother. And he will expand on this in the rest of the chapter when he talks about the new Jerusalem above who is our mother. Okay. And there, he is identifying here with that heavenly Jerusalem. As the new Jerusalem above is our mother, so Paul is a mother, if you will, use mother imagery, a mother of the children, of the Galatians. You are as if in my womb. You see, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. And even that word formed there can be referred to an infant being formed in the womb. There's some way in which they are formed. He desires them to be, Christ to be formed in them, in him giving them birth in Christ. Them being united to Christ. And some have suggested here this, this there's an eschatological sense here. Um, maybe. Until Christ is formed in you, this final eschatological formation of Christ. And what is it that's going on until Christ is formed in you? What Christ does he want formed in them? Is it not the Christ who has brought the fullness of the times? Yes, it's the Christ who has brought the fullness of the times. He wants that Christ formed in them. He wants them to be so united with Christ. And therefore, he wants Christ to be formed in them in such a way that they are liberated from the tyranny of the Judaizers. Because he's going to talk about this freedom that comes from being a child of the New Jerusalem next. Christ is formed in them so that they reject the Judaizers, they reject this enslavement to the world, and that they trust in their Savior alone. And notice what he, he's a messenger of God. How does he end this? But I could wish to be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. I could wish to be present. Is he? He's united to the Son of God. When he says this, is he not expressing the desire of the Son of God to be present with his people? You see, the Son of God desires to be present with you now. Even in the midst of your rebellion and sin, and you're turning to bondage. The Son of God desires to be present with you. 
and to change his tone. What's the tone going to be? What's the tone going to be in glory? Is it not going to be the tone of joy and resilience and love in that final union bond? Because you see, you have been united to Christ who bore the curse of the law and all the lamentation that comes from it and who has been raised into the dead and has brought the fullness of the time. And therefore, he is expressing to you in that his heart, his heart for you. Children of God, lay hold of that wondrous heart of God by faith, seeing it so well given to you in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience that liberty that comes in him. Any questions or comments? Okay, well, you're dismissed.